and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 185, recorded on April 18th, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. And we start with news from Dell, who've announced they'll spin out their stake in VMware, with the two companies agreeing to continue to operate without major changes for the next five years. On a conference call for investors, Dell founder and CEO Michael Dell emphasized the short-term benefits to shareholders, saying, as much as we grew the revenues of VMware, the market does not appear to appreciate a hardware-software combination. It's interesting to see Michael Dell flip his position from a total 180 in August of 2019. When he was asked about why Dell, EMC, and VMware were good together, his explanation was companies like that combination of hardware and software. You know, look, I think customers have told us very clearly they don't want to be systems integrators anymore. And they're looking for fewer partners and bringing together you know, broad, a broad set of capabilities across the infrastructure, security, client devices, the cloud, uh, digital transformation, enabling all those capabilities for customers, they'd much rather work with one leading company than 20 or 30. Perhaps what Dell learned was that industries don't really like lock into hardware and software vendors at the same time, and maybe they want some flexibility there. But either way, we'll save that for the analysis. Back to the story details here. Like Wes said, this deal includes a five-year agreement on the two businesses essentially just carrying on as they do today, followed by an automatic annual extension to the deal unless one of the companies says no more, we're calling it off. Dell, which is an important aspect of their revenue, will continue to resell VMware products. It makes up about 35%-ish of their revenue right now. So you can imagine the sales department was pretty relieved to see that deal would stay in place. It's also worth noting that Michael Dell will keep his seat on VMware's board and retains the right to appoint another director. And while the announcement was made after markets closed, Dell shares popped 8% in after-hours trading. VMware rose 1.5%. The deal is expected to close sometime in the fourth quarter of this year, but could still be called off if it isn't done by early 2022, if either of the companies backs out, or if something goes pear-shaped in any other way. <laughs> well, I guess initially, the market seems to like this. Little birdies have been hinting to Wes and I behind the scenes that this was coming for a while. Our buddy Drew actually predicted this on Linux Unplugged's annual predictions episode. And VMware's leader, like their what is now going to be their CEO, uh, was hinting back in September of 2019 that maybe things would be just fine if the two companies spun off from each other. You could see that there was a need for some breathing room by VMware. The market's getting competitive for them. They do a lot today. They still have a very strong market share and a very good market position. However, companies like IBM and Red Hat and many others are coming for their lunch, their core bread and butter. And my read of this situation is they just needed more flexibility. They needed to divorce themselves from a particular hardware vendor and make themselves more universally available. I imagine that's exactly what they're going to achieve with this. They're a legacy company in many ways, or at least from an older era, who've been trying to establish themselves in the new world of cloud and the, and the marketplaces there, and I think have made some good inroads. But being tied to other legacy companies like Dell that, that really are invested in non-cloud areas or EMC before that, maybe it's just holding them back. What's interesting is this announcement coming from Dell, because 
doesn't seem as advantageous for them. When they purchased EMC, when Dell purchased EMC, which included VMware, it was a $67 billion transaction, the largest in tech history, just a ginormous acquisition. And VMware makes up a pretty big part of that EMC acquisition. It was like clearly a big part of why they bought it. And the idea was, is Dell had now the hardware to do the storage, the compute, and the software to do the virtualization. And if you want to go big centralized storage, they've got all this EMC tech as well. But it just didn't quite bloom into what I think they were expecting. And I I do think that a big part of their core business today is on-premises data centers, small business data centers, large businesses who want to run their own infrastructure. That's still their bread and butter. But obviously, as the world changes and a lot of these shops go to a hybrid setup, they have to have some sort of solution there. And they've got, they've got like three or four irons in that fire right now trying to solve that problem. And none of them really have anything to do with Dell. And so when you look at it from like, what's VMware doing today and how is VMware positioning themselves? They were already kind of leaving Dell behind before this even happened. I'll be interested to see if anything changes with VMware's role at the Linux Foundation. You know, they do contribute a lot of things to open source and are involved in standards bodies and different organizations. As an independent company, are they going to be able to keep doing that? System76, makers of Linux hardware, has announced they are developing Cosmic, the computer operating system main interface components, a set of in-house extensions developed for GNOME Shell. The initial release of Cosmic is due in June alongside with Pop! OS 2104 and will be based on GNOME 3.38. Cosmic itself is not a fork of GNOME, which it has been described by as some. System76 said it studied user behavior and sought to refine key elements of the desktop accordingly. Say, for example, the Activities Overview, the core navigation tool in the GNOME desktop. It's now been split under Cosmic into two views, one just for workspaces, open windows and virtual desktops, and one for launching applications. Cosmic is also adding a dock by default because, at least according to System76, over 56% of Pop! OS users already use Dash to Dock or Dash to Panel. We asked Carl if they consider Cosmic to be ultimately a fork of GNOME or just a set of super extensions. Cosmic is an extension that creates a unique user interface while maintaining compatibility with GNOME, GNOME extensions, and the GNOME app ecosystem. We haven't found anything that we want to do yet that requires a fork, and we hope doing so is not required. Avoiding forking makes our work useful to people in other distributions. I like hearing that. When asked if they just considered basing the whole thing on the Plasma desktop, which would let them customize some of this, Carl said, Most of our work over the years has been in GTK. It would be a much larger decision to port that work over. We spent some time investigating writing larger portions of the desktop from scratch and did look at Plasma, but we haven't been persuaded that we'd had a lot of value in either of those directions. Fair enough. If your team is more of a GTK team, that just makes sense. So we gave it a go before the show today. And I'd say individually, the components that make up Cosmic on their own are subtle. They, they subtly change the GNOME shell experience. It still feels like core GNOME. But when you bring all of the Cosmic components together, it begins to feel still like GNOME, but a unique GNOME, differentiated from all of the other desktop experiences out there. And of course, it requires this new 
cosmic experience, this extension that breaks out workspaces and applications into two individual windows. The whole experience, though, requires everything they've built, all of the extensions from tiling, window management, and now this cosmic stuff, along with their theme, kind of really make it all shine and a unique experience. It takes a lot to make a GNOME experience that's out of this world. <laughs> I guess that's true. And they've done a pretty pretty good job. I'm not 100% sure that I like breaking out the overview of your windows and your applications. I actually think one of the nice things the GNOME team did was brought all of that into one interface. So <laughs> I don't know. If, we'll see. System76 seems to be implying that they're using data and user surveys to drive some of these design decisions. So they may have somewhere that they're aiming for. We'll have to really wait till June and they release ISO images for that complete experience, though. I know there's been a lot of speculation about how System76 would continue to have developed the GNOME desktop after all the work they've been putting in Pop! OS and Pop! Shell and adding these changes. And I think that's why there's so much conversation and confusion about, is this a fork? Because it seems like folks are worried that there might be a fork in the future here. But so far, it's kind of impressive how much they've been able to do just with extensions. Yeah, it makes you wonder if that isn't going to be a challenge for them as as the GNOME team starts to address some of their extension shortcomings, but also begins to address other technological shortcomings in the GNOME shell. Will System76 have a hard time keeping up? And I guess will Ubuntu, because they are already basing this on GNOME 3.3.8. Well, my laptop over here is running GNOME 40. So that means to use this, I have to go back a version of GNOME, which all said, I probably wouldn't really lose much, you know, because they've, they've got a nice experience here. But it already kind of puts them behind the ball. And it's not really their fault. That's just what Ubuntu, which they're based on, is doing. But I, what I see here is maybe the first signs that highly customizing GNOME like this does kind of put you behind a little bit. And with so much coming down the pipe to make the GNOME experience better... I'm kind of of the opinion that I want to be on the latest and greatest GNOME all the time. And maybe they can get it there, especially if Ubuntu gets it there. Maybe they just inherit all of that work. But right now, I'm wondering if we're just kind of seeing some of the early signs of when you go in heavy on customizations, you end up behind. I guess we'll have to wait till 2110 to find out. If you're curious, though, and you'd like to give the Cosmic Components a try before the beta is out, you'll find the packages in the System76 POP PPA. Otherwise, the sources are on GitHub and in our show notes. But do keep in mind, this is far from the final product. System76 also says they're looking for Windows and Mac users to experience Cosmic firsthand. If that might be you or someone you know, you can help out by contacting ux at system76.com. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards a new account. And of course, you go there to support the show. Did you know Linode is the largest independent cloud provider out there? They started in 2003 as one of the first companies in cloud computing. Three years! Three years! Before AWS or other enterprise providers. And they are still independently owned and doing it right. They have refined it to an art. And no matter what skill you're at or whatever technology stack you use, Linode can help your ideas come to life on the web. If you run into any kind of trouble or any kind of problems, Linode comes with amazing, fantastic customer service. 24-7, by phone or by ticket, they're going to help you. If you've got one Linode or you got got 100, they're going to make sure you get it taken care of. 
There's also hundreds of guides and tutorials to help you make sure you're getting things set up just right and have the confidence to actually put those things into production. That's what I love about their guides. Sometimes, sometimes I just want to make sure I'm doing it right. And they got lots of good guides to help you do that. And Linode is easy to use with a powerful cloud dashboard. And you can tell there's little hints in there that the people that build this stuff love Linux. And one of the features outside of just server hosting that I think is fantastic, even though they got 11 data centers around the world, super fast 40 gigabit connections, crazy fast native SSDs, AMD Epic processors for their dedicated CPU rigs, they also have S3 compatible object storage. Chew on that for a second. Just marinate that in your brain on what you could do with Linode's S3 compatible object storage. And yeah, they got cloud firewalls. And of course, they got simple one-click application deployments and so much more. That's why you got to check it out yourself. So go to linode.com slash LAN. Get that $100 60-day credit on your new account and kick the tires. See what I've been talking about and help make this show possible all at the same time. That's linode.com slash LAN. It should come as little surprise, especially given the recent news of Google allowing Rust to be used for Android system level code, that engineers at the search giant are in support of Rust being used in the Linux kernel. In addition to that, this week there was a Rust RFC for the Linux kernel, and that discussion is still taking place in the Linux kernel mailing list. We'll get back to that. But Google engineers, they wanted to optimize the moments and express their support on the Google security blog, stating that we feel that Rust is now ready to join C as a practical language for implementing the kernel. It can help us reduce the number of potential bugs and security vulnerabilities in privileged code while playing nicely with the core kernel and preserving its performance characteristics. Holy moly guacamole, Wes. This seems like this is actually happening. Linus's reaction to the RFC seems fairly positive, uh, inquisitive, you might say. He definitely has some questions he once answered, but he said, quote, on the whole, I don't hate it. But he also said that the runtime failure panic is a fundamental issue. So as I was hoping you kind of explain to us what this runtime failure panic is that uh, Linus is referring to. I thought you might ask, but I'm going to punt to Steve Klabnik, Rust core team member, who said on Hacker News that the short explanation, this code wasn't in its final form yet but good enough to ask for a high-level review. The review came back, said, hey, this looks okay overall, but I have some questions. So really, the RFC never claimed to be in shape, to be immediately mergeable into the kernel. Part of the problem is about the way Rust panics, and this is kind of a big moment for Rust, because up to now, yes, it has been used for some kernel development, look at, you know, the Zircon kernel over in Fuchsia, or Redux OS, but nothing quite as big and production as the Linux kernel, of course. There are a lot of Rust applications, and in those, most of the time, those applications don't really handle the situation of running out of memory well. And you want something like a pan panic, where you just kill that thread, give up, something's gone wrong, you don't have memory, try again, or just crash the system. But that's bad in the kernel. You don't want the kernel to die. The kernel is the one in charge of memory allocation, so you need it to get a reasonable result back, and then be able to do something else, try to free up memory, whatever has to happen. Yeah, you definitely don't want it panicking while it's in the kernel. Definitely. But the nuance that got lost here was really the use of alloc, just the call in Rust to allocate memory, the normal one. That was just a temporary measure to speed up development. And that's why the RFC really wasn't meant to be merged as is. The point of this discussion is to say, 
yes, there's some work to do. We need to make the memory allocation do some fine tuning there as long as the rest of this looks good. And if it does look good, which at least sounds like to Linus and many other folks, it does, in kernel Rust support is to the point that prototyping modules can start now. We can work out some more of that binding code, figure that out, get that, you know, up to Linus's satisfaction, but go start trying to use it. Well, and what Linus has identified as an issue here sounds like they also already think is an issue and are working towards solving. So that's pretty positive. Android is taking this a step further, right? They're doing like their Bluetooth stack in Rust. And you look at things that are inherently low-hanging fruit, like the wireless driver support stack in the Linux kernel, and you wonder if maybe that wouldn't be better rewritten in a more memory-safe language. But additionally, on top of all this, besides the what could be some some nice technical advantages supporting Rust, there's the human advantage. It, it, it allows the kernel team, which skews a little older, Wes, to tap into new hype around Rust and maybe appeal to new developers that are willing to contribute to the kernel but just don't like contributing in C. They want to contribute in Rust. Yeah, I think that despite Rust obviously having its own learning curve, you know, C is an old language. You might not know what resources to use. And just beyond all of that, Rust is modern. It's got a linter. It's got a package manager built right in. Now, you're not going to use all those things in the kernel world. It's definitely going to be different. But just as a, a language to learn and try to bridge to get someone who might just be doing, you know, web development on the side, but wants to start playing with the kernel, Rust seems like a good fit. Well, speaking of the kernel, if all goes as planned, we will have a brand new Linux 5.12 next weekend. It was supposed to land this weekend, but after looking at everything, the team decided to put out one more release candidate and hold off on the release until next week, which all in all is probably a pretty good decision because the 5.12 release cycle has been kind of bumpy, slightly. Caution is good in a project like the Linux kernel, but you can't fool me, Chris. I know you were just waiting for that N64 support, but you'll have to wait one more week. Don't worry, though. We'll have all the details about 5.12 in the next Linux Action News. Linux.ting.com. Ting is my mobile service provider, and it has never been a better time to try out Ting in all of the years I have ever used Ting. Linux.ting.com will get you $25 off. And I know it's hard to get a good family plan too, and I wanna mention this for everyone. Ting has solved this particular pain point. As many lines as you need on your account, it's just $10 per line. Every single line has unlimited texts and calls, and every line shares that same pool of data so you can budget and plan accordingly. And if you use two or 20 gigabytes or even more of data, there's a perfect Ting plan for you. Every plan gets access to Ting's award-winning customer service. Award-winning customer service. Not just like regular customer service, but like the extra good kind of customer service. And that matters. You'll notice that if they got good customer service, I'm going to tell you about it. And Ting does. Something else I love from a technical side, though, is they have nationwide LTE and 5G networks to choose from. I'm presently on the Verizon network, but... There may be something in your area that has great signal and they have all of the maps to help you figure it out. One thing about Ting to keep in mind is they keep things simple. It's really easy to switch to Ting and it's really easy to get your new phone or an old phone set up. Pretty much any phone's gonna work on Ting because they got so many dang networks. So just head to linux.ting.com to check your current phone, create an account and pick up the plan that's just right for you. Right for you could be something very different than what I use, but that's the beautiful thing about Ting. You get what's right, they send you a SIM card, you pop it in, you go to their website, within minutes, you're going. 
really that's it. Like the time it takes you to hear this, you could be up and running on Ting. Cut your phone bill in half in minutes and get started with Ting. Just go to linux.ting.com. The team behind Matrix, Element Matrix Services, also known as EMS, have announced they're launching a hosted bridge for Microsoft Teams. A single Microsoft Teams bridge supports unlimited users across unlimited channels. And the pricing is actually based on the number of active users that are using the bridge from Microsoft Teams at a cost of 50 cents per user per month. And then all of the other traffic and stuff related to that is free. But what's notable about this release, at least if you're not a Microsoft Teams user anyway, is that when they were asked if the bridge would be open source, they said no. The bridge itself is not going to drop into the open source matrix code anytime soon. This is an entirely new bridge that we've built exclusively for Element Matrix Services, which is the SaaS hosting platform we provide in order to keep the lights on for matrix development and for Element in general. Yeah, they kind of make a joke about how if you're rich enough to pay for teams, you're rich enough to pay for our bridge. You know, I have to give them some credit there. Matrix is pretty neat. It's definitely a a useful product and you have to fund it somehow. I think this just caught some of us by surprise. Yeah, not going open source. Yeah, I I agree. Um, but I think when you look at the client for this, this is these are clients that use Teams that are trying to get to platforms maybe that Teams isn't on. Or another use case that I think they mentioned in their press announcement, but I know companies I've worked for would be all over this, is DR, disaster recovery, as a like maybe Teams is down option or a backup in the searchable index of Teams. That's super valuable there too. And you don't even have to do it for all your users necessarily. So there's really, when you look at the customer base here, Wes, um, I think I see their logic. It would be nice if the, if you could self-host this, right? Like if you could just run this on your own VPS or your own on-premises box, that would be ideal. And to that point, I suppose I should note that there's nothing stopping a willing developer out there from making an open source Teams bridge if they want. Although it's not going to be me. This is why friends just don't let friends use Teams. Speaking of Microsoft, Microsoft's WSL team has just shipped the latest Linux 5.10 series kernel to Windows Insiders, and the new update brings some nice-to-see improvements. The way Microsoft works on the Linux kernel is fascinating. They have a Linux system group that is responsible for creating the WSL2 kernel as well as the ones that run on Azure and a lot of their other devices. They have like a, a, a department at Microsoft that is dedicated to Linux kernel development. And once they say they have a new version ready, they pass it on to the WSL team. The WSL team runs it through a series of tests. They test it internally extensively. And then once it's passed those tests, they ship it off to the Windows insiders. Those crazy batch of living on the edge Windows users then pull down the latest Microsoft updates. And in this one, they're gonna get a Linux kernel update that will add Lux disk encryption And with some nice WSL fancy command line love, you will be able to mount those Lux disks inside of a Windows host. This shiny new kernel also fixes a clock sync issue that caused WSL2 instances to have a different time than the actual time on the host machine. Not what you'd expect. Windows insiders out there just need to run Windows Update and they'll be upgraded to the latest kernel version. Microsoft shipping Linux kernels in Windows Update. I'm still not used to it. 
And one last story in the Microsoft and Windows world. And thank you to Michael over at Pharonix for noting that Hangover had a new release. Hangover 0.65 is now available for getting wine up and running with cross-architecture support so you can enjoy the likes of Windows games and Windows applications under 64-bit ARM and even IBM Power Hardware that's running Linux. Yeah, that's right. Hangover, of course, is the project that crafts wine with a modified QEMU and other bits, allowing x86, 32-bit, and 64-bit Windows programs to run on alternative architectures under Linux. But hey, who you call an alternative? As for Wednesday's release of Hangover 065, it now supports starting QEMU automatically if needed, amongst a variety of other improvements. Well, if those massively powerful ARM or even IBM power workstations ever do develop, we'll tell you about it and everything else that happens in the world of Linux. So just go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to keep in touch. And a special heads up for you Coda Radio fans. Just for this week, the live time has moved to Tuesday. Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. It's a special live event. Come for Linux Unplugged and stay for Coder. That's one huge Tuesday. And we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. <laughs>